Hello again, welcome back to Luxi, a podcast to reignite your wonder by exploring the science of luxury. So last time we discussed black and blue pigments and how those are made. And Demos, which ones are we covering today? We're going to be covering white and purple. And I will probably start with white paint. Yes, you can start with white and uh, I will take on purple later. So take it away, Demos. I'm going to take it away. White paint is a much beloved paint color, (laughs) one of the first colors used in art. We know this because of prehistoric cave drawings, such as those in Lascaux, featuring marks and images made using calcite and chalk. The cave provided us with the earliest examples of humans using white pigments. It was thought that the cave paintings were created about 17,000 years ago. Ancient Mesopotamians held the color in high regard, as did most of the ancient world. Remaining records from this period describe how walls of the great priest-king's homes were painted white with gypsum. Also of interest is the fact that the Great Pyramid, and I also noticed this on the Lego set (laughs) the Great Pyramid, um, is that... We don't see that anymore today, but five and a half million tons of white limestone covered and capped off the pyramids. Must have been quite the sight to see in ancient times. You know, in in the desert to see these enormous white pyramids gleaming in the sun. Mm -hmm. It's been amazing. In ancient Greece, white was a sacred color, a representative of the light and milk of mothers. In Rome, a plain white toga, toga virilis, hmm was worn by all Roman citizens at ceremonial occasions. Togas were brightened with white chalk and a toga candida, Mm. which is an interesting word. The uh, Latin meaning being bright white, but also the toga candida was worn by those seeking to have public office. You know, what's interesting is that my color purple also had a lot of symbolic implications in the Roman Empire. So only... Certain people were allowed to wear purple certain ways and at certain times. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, obviously the word candid being clear, let me, which is now more common. I don't know. I don't, I don't know if Romans held their politicians in any better regard than we do ours today. There was, there was some actual literal black backstabbing. <laughs> so in doing a lot of this research, it, a lot of it really went to the ancient artists mm. and... We're going to learn a little bit of interesting detail, but I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about a very common and very simple white um, that doesn't use anything exotic like lead or titanium or zinc, and that's good old gesso. I had no idea what gesso was until I researched this. Gesso is an important art supply, which you put on your canvas prior to painting. Yes, white paints have long been used for sort of primer or kind of a base layer yeah but you're not going to use like your best white no paints, no but no. you will use something like gesso you can buy gesso ready-made from any art supply shop gesso is similar to a white acrylic paint only thinner as it's made of gypsum chalk and a binder hmm well there you go there's yeah. our binder very simple it dries hard making the surface stiff gesso prepares or primes the surface for painting making the surface slightly textured and ready to accept acrylic or other paints Without gesso, a paint would soak into the weave of the canvas. The word for gesso is a noun, but many artists also use it as a verb. Yeah. So, for example, you need to gesso your canvas. 
<laughs> but even I know remember I remember when I was doing some drywall work in the house. The most, a very important part of preparing drywall is also putting a primer on there. That included gypsum as well and chalk and a binder very much. So I was gessoing the walls. And so, for example, if you build a house with wallboard, it'll be a, it'll have gypsum that has a binder. And that, that inner part is quite white. And then you have the cardboard on either end. And that's generally what most walls are made of in the U.S. So what we call sheetrock. Lime powder and gesso were the first whites available in prehistoric times. However, the most important contribution to art materials came, of course, from Greece. With lead. <laughs> uh, so lead were the white, Greeks to, the first to use lead white? Uh, yes, in fact, they were. In fact... Uh, Greece, and really not just Greece, but that entire area around the southern Mediterranean seemed to be hmm. developing uh, white paints. You might not want to claim this particular one, though. No, well, there's a good reason not to. It's quite toxic. Yes. And the pigment would become ubiquitous in Western art, and even to this day, we still use lead white, believe it or not. Yeah, you know, I think you know, using lead white in a paint... For, for artwork. For painting yeah. is different than, you know, that women used to use lead white for their cosmetics. Oh, yeah. And yeah. It's slightly different and, and for a long <laughs> exposure time rate. <laughs> yeah. To make their paint, artists would grind a lead brick into a powder, uh, then put that into a binder as an early sort of state. For lead white, I thought there was also a process oh, yeah. that included like fire and... And the people who had to collect the lead white, it was, it was rather a tough job. Oh, yeah. There's no doubt. There's a lot of toxicity. Uh, painter's colic is actually a term that's associated with the grinding of lead to make lead white. However, the Dutch process made lead white much more uh, ubiquitous in art and created a very high quality paint, but again, involving a lot of grinding of lead. The basic lead carbonate is what you want for white. You can do that by grinding it into like a vegetable drying oil, normal lead carbonate, or other lead carbonate compounds have been um, identified as basic lead carbonate. All of these varieties are, would be impurities. It's pure lead carbonate that you want. Now, getting that is called the stack process or the old Dutch process. And that's where you put lead flakes into a, a lovely mix of heated strong vinegar and the gas of rotting horse manure mm -hmm. or other fermentables. The um, result of those uh, gases from fermentation would be the CO2 you need. And what you would first get is lead acetate, which would then decompose in CO2 to create lead carbonate. Yeah, apparently you had to like cover it up and let it sit for quite some time. Yeah, it takes that, a long time and that's what, for decomposition. You know, the, the paint collectors, it wasn't a particularly fun job, no, even without the poisoning Oh, aspect. yeah, yeah, no, but... <laughs> So you know, leave it to the old Dutch, but they did make some great paints and great paintings. There were some very pure lead mines. Langenfort, Austria, had a superior lead mine that was Galena mine, which is another uh, crystal. In fact, Galena is one of the first ever uh, semiconductors used long before the advent of transistors. Uh, you use it as a radio receiver. However, lead is always found in, Gal in Galena mines, and... Uh, a lead of an extremely high quality was found in Krems, at the Krems mine. And even to this day, you can go into an art shop and ask for a Krems white, hmm. which would be an extremely pure form of lead white. In 2018, researchers in the United States discovered titanium white. They discovered it in 400-year-old Inca pottery. Oh, 
Yes. Titanium white really didn't show up until about 1908 when it was discovered by a chemist in Niagara Falls, mm. New York. Sure enough, rediscovered. Re- well, yes, you could say now. I, it was, this is only recently. Yeah. So imagine not knowing that titanium white was used by the Inca 400 <laughs> years before it was discovered in the U.S. Makes me wonder if like, there's ever any really true discoveries anymore, if we're just rediscovering things people knew I, and I then think, forgot. <laughs> I think what you always have to go to the Inca after you discover something. But yes, uh, apparently uh, elaborate geometric designs, cups called caros, Traditionally, we're not colored, but around the time of the Spanish conquest in 1530, the Inca were mixing pigments, including titanium white, into resin and decorating these cups with this bright goo. Maybe they were secretly trying to poison the Spanish invaders. There's no poisoning in the titanium, but surprisingly, you know, in an irony, once the Spanish conquistadors came in, went away from titanium white to lead white <laughs> by the Inca. So I think the opposite. That was sort of the whole theme of that entire conquest. But in, in any case, the Inca did jump 400 years into the future. And the way they did that was by having a deposit available to them called the Giacomo deposit between the border of Chile and Peru. Mm. It's full of naturally occurring titanium dioxide and silica, exactly what you need to, to make, make white paint. The paint yeah. Now, the quality was quite high, not quite as high as today's modern white paints. But yes, unfortunately, by 1570, the Inca stopped using titanium dioxide and just switched to lead white, which the conquistadors brought. Other versions of white include lipothone, which is a barium sulfate and zinc sulfide paint, first created in the 1870s. Now we're really going into modern. Uh, The first modern white, not made by lead. It held actually the the 60% of the market for all white pigments and certainly not as dangerous as lead. Yeah. It rivaled, now lead white was still sold and Mm -hmm. zinc white was sold as well. But uh, zinc white didn't really stick because it was so brittle. And by, however, by World War II, the the demand decreased about 15% due to the popularity of titanium white. Today, titanium white or titanium dioxide dominates the white pigment market with more than 5 million tons of titanium white used every year in the production of plastics, cosmetics, even pills. Wow. Have titanium white in them to give them the white color. Hmm. It's very opaque, extremely strong in mixtures, non-toxic, everything you could use. I did a little bit of research on on what would happen if you owned a white car versus a a hot, uh, on a hot day versus a black car. Well, you, and you know my opinion about white cars. I know you don't like white cars. Not even remotely. But one of the things that's true is it can be 20% lower temperature to own a white car on a hot day. And on a 95 degree day, your car can get up to 135 degrees Fahrenheit or 57 degrees Celsius. Wow. But on that same 35 degrees Celsius day, your interior temperature can be 20% lower on a white car. Hmm. Even even bearable, if you will. <laughs> I also did a little bit of white in fashion. I thought I'd throw a little fashion in there. Um, Mary, Queen of Scots, when she married her first husband, Francis Dauphin, Dauphin. Dauphin of France in 1559 was a white wedding gown, but it wasn't until Queen Victoria chose to wear a white court dress that the trend for white bridal dresses became commonplace across the Western world. Not even commonplace. I mean, it was was the thing to do. She was quite the trendsetter. I talk a little about she wore a a synthetic purple dress that kicked off a whole craze of mauve 
mauve colored dresses. Well, I'm so glad that we're, we're able to, to dovetail these <laughs> colors through the use of fashion. Um, I was wondering if you would look into that white paint that was developed by researchers at Purdue that was supposed to reflect 98.1% of sunlight. Please tell me more. So this ultra white paint that reflects a lot of sunlight and keeps surfaces up to 19 degrees Fahrenheit cooler than their ambient surroundings. And it could be available for purchase in the next year or two. This was back in 2021, so maybe next year. They're saying it can reduce the reliance on air conditioners for homes. That would be great. Yeah. Paint for climate change. <laughs> so yeah, they said their paint only absorbs 1.9% of sunlight, but commercial most commercial paints absorb 10 to 20% of sunlight. So, so it's like five times, five to seven times better yes. than, uh, than typical commercial white yes. paint. Yes. Yeah. So it reflects nearly all the sun's rays and sends infrared heat away from the surface, providing an average cooling power of 113 watts per square meter. Okay. Yeah, I've painted onto the roof of a thousand square foot home that translates to a cooling power of 10 kilowatts, which is more powerful than most residential central air conditioners. And you know what that means? More than you could put in with solar panels. Yeah, and the, t- the tests were conducted in sunny midday hours on the roof of a campus building in West Lafayette, Indiana. And the paint kept the surface outdoor surfaces 8 degrees cooler than ambient surrounding temperatures. At night, the paint kept the surfaces 19 degrees cooler. I have purple for this episode it's quite a different color than white and has but has an equally interesting history in terms of the pigment so first things first is the difference between purple and violet do you most do you know i don't know i just assumed they were the same color no so pur- so violet is the actual color on the visible spectrum of light in the way the wavelengths between 380 and 420 nanometers is violet okay. light. Okay. Purple is a combination of the red and blue on the spectrum. So it's a mixture of single wavelengths. Oh. Yeah. I so the, the, the words have become interchangeable in our vernacular on color, but they are different things. So how do we get purple pigment? So... Early cave paintings in Peshmerel in France, dating from 25,000 to 16,000 BCE, have purple pigment that is made from a mix of hematite and manganese. So hematite, is uh, the name is from the Greek word for blood, hema, because of its red coloration. It's actually ferrous, uh, iron, sorry, iron oxide. It's found in, widely in rocks and soils, and it has the same crystal structure as corundrum. Do you remember what else is corundrum? Corundrum. Yes, it's the uh, crystal structure for sapphire. Yeah, sapphire. Oh, cool. Yeah. So it's naturally black to steel gray or brown or reddish brown. It's electrically conductive, which is kind of cool. Ochre clay is colored by varying amounts of hematite. And that is and and was a popular natural pigment. So the other part of this combination, manganese, is actually a chemical element. And it's hard, brittle, silvery metal often found with iron, which is why you can find these close together. It's actually the second most abundant transition metal in the Earth's crust. Uh, Trace amounts are found in humans where it's involved in bone formation and free radical defense. So it's actually a key trace element for human survival. And it reacts with iron to reduce glass. So it reduces to a strong green color in glass, and larger quantities are used to make pink glass. Now, I know lime glass doesn't include magnesium at all, but has more calcium carbonate in it to get that green hue. Yeah, but if you want a stronger green color, you can add manganese, manganese. and it reduces the um, calcium carbonate and makes it into a stronger color. Okay, great. 
And it was also one of the compounds in Yinmin, the new blue that we talked about last oh, episode. Yeah, that's right. Yinmins are such a cool new color. I know. I really like that color. So I'm just going to keep talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a lot of science. So how about a story? Do you like okay, a story? I love a good story. Okay. Say you're you're walking on a Mediterranean beach, which we have been doing some of lately. We have. Right? But you have your dog. Beaches. We don't have a dog. But say you have a dog. Okay. And your dog is digging through the seashells. Or a beach no. cat. No, you gotta, I don't think a beach cat would do work in this story. Okay. <laughs> Digging through seashells, as they do often, you know, dogs, and you look over and this dark color is staining your dog's mouth. So you run over to investigate thinking it's blood, but instead it's actually a dark purple dye. Mm-hmm. And then you imagine you were the mythic hero Hercules, or Heracles. Heracles. What would you do? I would um, look around and see what what is it my dog's eating. <laughs> yes. And maybe you would make it one of the most sought-after dyes in history, spawning the lasting connection between purple and royalty. And then you would have that moment immortalized in a painting by Rubens. It's a painting of Heracles' dog finding what Tyrian purple. I posted that painting on our Instagram and Twitter account last week, so you can go and see it. I love Rubens' stuff. I remember as a kid seeing it in the Louvre. Yeah, you should check this one out. It's a neat painting. A slightly more likely story was that it wasn't Hercules the mythic warrior, but Heracles of Tyr, a philosopher. And what is true about the story is that a popular and rare purple dye, Turian purple, does come from a snail. And just so you know, Tyr was in ancient, in ancient Phoenicia, which is today in Lebanon. The snail, which produced this amazing color, is called Bolinus brandaris. It's a predatory sea snail and lives in central and western parts of the Mediterranean and occasionally in the Indian Ocean and South China Sea. It is edible. Mm. You can eat it if you would like. And it produces this milky white mucus from its hypobranchial glands that turns a deep reddish purple when exposed to the air. And this is what is used for the dye. However, it took a lot of snails to produce enough dye for fabric. So that is why the color was reserved for royalty and or those who could pay for it. And there were all these laws about who could, like I said, in Roman times, but in other civilization as well, very strict laws that were really enforced about who could wear purple. Just because of the expense and the rarity. Yeah. So interestingly, in ancient China, purple dye was not made from snails, but from the purple gromwell, a plant, but it didn't adhere well to fabrics. It's thought because of this that the Chinese were the first to develop synthetic purple dye using barium, copper, silicon, and oxygen, and it's more of an indigo, like a really dark blue. The Han purple or Han blue then decomposes and the copper oxide is formed, which adds red to the color, making it purple. And then it gets stable. Yes. To make it, you take barium mineral, quartz, and copper mineral, and a lead salt, and it was heated to around 900 to 1,000 degrees Celsius, which seems to be the magic temperature range for, range for making pigments. Yeah. Because Egyptian blue is a sort of the same temperature range. And though this sounds a lot like Egyptian blue, there's little evidence that these two methods came from each other, that one of them came from the other one, or that they even knew that the other civilization was making something similar. So... As with many of the other pigments, there came a point in history where people wanted a synthetic purple dye because making it out of the snails was not really sustainable. Uh, Scientists were trying to invent something else when they invented synthetic purple. So in 1856, William H. Perkin was experimenting to try and make synthetic quinine to treat malaria. And instead, he found a synthetic purple dye that quickly dominated the market, especially after Queen Victoria wore it. And it was called Movine. Oddly, it wasn't used much after the mid-1860s except for stamps. And I think it's still used in some British stamps. Yeah. 
So to figure out how it was made, uh, scientists took samples from mauveine-dyed fabrics in museums, and they're able to recreate the original mauveine, and they found 13 different methyl derivatives of, this is a long one, you ready? 7-amino, 5-phenyl, 3-phenyl-amino, phenazine, 5-vium compounds. Okay, great. Yes. Essentially, what to take from this is methyl derivatives are the addition of different numbers of methyl groups, which a methyl group is just a carbon with three hydrogens around it. The different derivatives of this compound with a different number of methyl groups have a absorption maxima in the 540 to 550 nanometer range of purple. And so essentially how many methyl groups you have sort of determines how purple purple it is. And methyl, So the more methyl, the more purple? I think so. But this also happens in your body. So like things like your DNA and proteins get methylated, and they think that it actually changes the function of... Of them. So can you tell by like pulling out some of that protein to see if you're methylated by the color no. that you see no. on the slide? No. Because it's not it's not the same, it's not the full the methyl groups are added to that big long compound that I said. Oh, so that's the methyl that's the minimum amount of methyl group to get the purple. Yeah, there's yeah, well there's this is the minimum compound and then you can add add methyls. Oh, okay. And they found 13 different versions of it. No, it's not the methyl group itself. It's the attachment to this larger compound that has a lot of aminos in it and some phenols, phenols in the rings. So in a full circle moment, one of the modern purple pigments is manganese violet. And it's an ammonium manganese pyrophosphate. It's an inorganic compound that you prepare by heating manganese oxide dioxide ammonium phosphate and phosphoric acid and it's used very widely eyeliner eyeshadow lipstick nail polish and oil paint and and that's even today like yeah that's the the modern manganese violet it's one of the most popular purple pigments currently used all right so they went all the way back they started the manganese all the way back in 25,000 bce and came all the way back around to it glossary for today well i would definitely add titanium dioxide okay which is which is the modern white. All right. How about hematite, where hematite is? Hematite is um, iron sulfate. Iron oxide. Iron oxide. Ferrous oh, just oxide. rust. Ferrous oxide. It is it's good fashion rust. Well, except that it's in a crystal structure. It's a little bit different. Okay. And uh, I would guess I should also add gesso. Yeah. So what's gesso? It's a very simple white. If you were to go and make white at your yard, finding <laughs> common rocks... Gesso would probably be the first thing that you could make. And I'm going to add methyl groups. Do you remember what a methyl group is? Yeah, it's something that in the proper chemical chemical concentrations creates purple. No. All right. Well. No, that's not it. Chem- a methyl group is just... All a methyl group is is a carbon surrounded by three hydrogens. Okay. And it happens to attach itself to a purple dye that was used back in the mid-1800s. Okay. Fun cocktail party facts. Hey, we had a cocktail party recently. Did you use any fun cocktail party facts? I was too busy mixing drinks. Oh. Did you? Not the cocktail party, but I did yesterday when we went to Friendsgiving. Mm. Because our host had a rather striking painting. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's right. And so that got me... You talked about paint pigments. I did talk about paint pigments. I I fear I might have bored the person I was talking to, though. I think they were just Mm. being polite. I think we we run the risk of super science (laughs) cocktail effects. Anyway, we're still going to do them because I like them. All right. How was Tyrian purple discovered? Uh, By uh, Heracles. 
well, more more specifically... By his dog. By his dog, yes, who was eating the snails. What element is in ancient and modern purple dyes? Hematite. Manganese. Manganese. Oh. Hematite's not an element. Hematite's no, a compound. compound. Yeah, you gotta you know, get those Learning important that. clues in the question. Yeah. It's like you're back element. taking your SATs. <laughs> not that good. <laughs> All right. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Luxi. As always, many thanks to my co-host and audio engineer, Demos. Our theme music is Harlequin Mood by Birdie. We're all over social media at Pod, And your assignment for the next two weeks, leave us a review. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Google. I think we're in a lot of different places. So wherever you listen, please rate and review the podcast. That helps us get onto lists so that other people can find us. Yeah, you can use this like one word, like spectacular, <laughs> fascinating, worthy of note. Oh, that's, that's three words. That's three words. <laughs> okay, thank you again. 